Welcome back to our podcast, Regulation Matters, A Clear Conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. I'm currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Rick and Benny Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina, and I'm also CLEAR's President-Elect. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is a chance for you to hear about important topics in our regulatory community. Our guests today are with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia. We have Dr. Heidi Otter. Um, she is the registrar and CEO there. Uh, Derek Puttister, he is the deputy registrar. And Susan Prins is the director of communications with public affairs. So we're certainly glad to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you. And we're glad to speak to you today. Um, I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. On, on today's podcast episode, we're going to talk with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC about organizational transformation. You know, I think CLEAR's audience will benefit from hearing your story of how you are addressing Indigenous-specific racism in healthcare in British Columbia. So to start the discussion, Heidi, could you give us some background on the college's commitment to cultural safety and humility um, and how that came to be an important focus? Yeah, thanks, Line. Uh, along with the other regulated health professions in the province of British Columbia, we signed a declaration to cultural safety and humility with our First Nations health authority partners in 2017. By signing the declaration, the health regulators publicly committed to strengthening relationships with indigenous peoples, and most importantly, ensuring that culturally safe practices were embedded in college day-to-day -day operations and formal proceedings. Since that initial commitment, we have focused on transforming our organization to take meaningful steps in truth and reconciliation, making culturally safe and humble care an expectation at point of care, and starting a rebranding project to shed our 140-year-old corporate logo that is distinctly colonial. That uh, transformation you described you know, certainly sounds ambitious. So maybe, Heidi, if you could maybe talk about the specific actions or strategies that you have employed to ensure that you're successful on this journey. Uh, yes, thanks for that question. Uh, I have to say that we are on the journey and we will be on this journey for some time. The first thing we did was we started with education. The tone at the top is really important. We made it mandatory for our board members and our senior team members to complete an eight week online training program on cultural safety and humility. And it's really a process of learning and unlearning. And once we started that educational process, things just flowed from there. We really dug into truth and understanding the impact of colonization on indigenous people in, in Canada and in British Columbia. And this has now blossomed into an annual suite of educational training and support for the entire organization, our board, and all of our committees. And we focus on implicit bias, cultural safety and humility training, as well as trauma-informed processes. The next thing that I think that was really important for the organization in its transformation is that we issued an apology to Indigenous people. And we did that together with our regulatory colleges from nursing and midwifery, from dentistry, and from pharmacists. And it's really a pledge to be anti-racist. 
And the last thing that we did that I think has been really important is that we've strengthened uh, indigenous representation in our governance throughout the college. So that includes indigenous members on our board, uh, as well as our committees, as well as ensuring that our hiring practices are truly reflective of our commitment to uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Wow. Well, it's it's clear that you've done a lot of work, um, you know, internally in terms of education for your board and your staff. Obviously, um, I guess what specifically are you doing for the physicians and surgeons that you regulate, and and kind of what are you expecting of them? And, and I'm going to put that to Susan. Susan, if you would. Yeah, thank you, Line. Well, we're currently developing a practice standard on cultural safety and humility that really sets out very clear expectations of our registrants in terms of their daily practice. And our practice standards are akin to policies. They reflect a minimum standard of professional behavior and conduct that's expected of our registrants on a specific topic or issue, and they are enforceable under our legislation. So in developing the standard, we also undertook a very comprehensive, really a year long consultation process with members of the public. And we did this through our BC Public Advisory Network or the BC PAN. And the BC PAN is a public engagement initiative which is sponsored and governed by 10 of British Columbia's health regulators. It consists of 15 members of the public who represent the diversity of our population in the province. And the goal of the BC PAN is to encourage more comprehensive and meaningful public engagement on issues related to healthcare regulation. So in this case, the public advisors were asked to provide their feedback on a set of core principles that were related to cultural safety and humility, which was a very insightful starting point for us. We also had the opportunity to meet with Indigenous patients and Indigenous registrants through virtual facilitated focus groups or digital circles. And in this case, we provided the core principle, principles to the participants in advance of the sessions. And we're really interested in their thoughts on three key questions. The first one was, are there any important concepts that we may have missed in the practice standard? And two, for successful implementation, what sort of educational resources might be helpful when we launch the standard? And the third question we asked was, what barriers might we anticipate from registrants? We learned a lot from these circles. Participants really had an informative exchange and discussion amongst themselves. And some of the points they made were that, of course, people exist on a broad spectrum in terms of their personal cultural safety and humility learning journey. And as it relates to our registrants, of course, we know that they'll all be in a different place. And it's going to be really important that Indigenous registrants aren't left carrying the burden of managing this process on behalf of their non-Indigenous colleagues. We really recognize at this point that this is our problem to fix, not theirs. So, um, Derek, you know, I understand that there was an investigation ordered by your Minister of Health into allegations of, of racist behavior by healthcare workers, um, specifically targeting Indigenous in British Columbia um, in hospitals. Um, yeah, I feel like this might have been the impetus for some of this change, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure, for sure, Lane. You know, um, uh, there were a group of learners who were participating in a cultural safety and humility course that was developed by Indigenous educators across British Columbia. And, and in the course of discussions in the program, um, you know, allegations were brought forward that um, it's very sad to say, and it's, it's actually kind of hard to talk about, but, um, you know, allegations were brought forward that, um, you know, uh, emergency room staff were playing a game 
when indigenous peoples presented for care. And, and that game was called The Price is Right. And allegedly the goal of the game was to, to guess the blood alcohol level of the indigenous patient who had presented for care. Um, I mean, this is a time of great social change. And, and I, I think when you know, our, our officials heard that, um, you know, they, they really wanted to act in, in a thoughtful and thorough way. So the, so the minister recruited um, a, a very well-regarded um, member of the legal community to, to open an investigation. And, and it's interesting, Lyon, you know, um, when, when, I mean, the college was, was certainly aware that we didn't receive many complaints from indigenous uh, peoples, and uh, it was it was something that we were actively working on. But this investigation, you know, was very much a listening exercise. And and when the lead investigators said to the community, you know, if you've if you've experienced something that's you know worthy of a complaint, please let us know. You know, you know, line they got they got thousands thousands of calls, and and this not only included you know indigenous patients, but their family members, their community leaders. And also indigenous registrants. Um, so, so I mean, you know, clearly a, a, a staggering sign that systemic racism against indigenous peoples is unfortunately part of the healthcare experience um, in British Columbia. And I thought the report was very appropriately named, you know, in plain sight. Um, so, you know, we, we take this incredibly seriously. Um, I mean, not not only does this fit into our mandate. But, but, you know, this is our community. We, we work in relationship with people. We take very seriously our obligations to serve. And, um, um, you know, we have studied each of the recommendations that have come out of that report. And uh, I mean, I mean there, there's really no doubt. I mean, simply put, we, we must and we will respond to every single recommendation that was issued um, by, by the ministry. Derek, let me ask you this then. So, with this opening of the floodgates, if you would, um, do you think that there were a lot of people that maybe didn't know how to file a complaint? I mean, is that part of the process as well? Um, and that we're now getting a, an open communication, an open dialogue, if you would, on, you know, this is how to do it. Because I know in North Carolina, when I was with the North Carolina Dental Board, uh, one of the things that we, we saw regularly is certain populations were very well versed in the complaint process and other people didn't even know it even existed. So was that something that I think, you know, gave some information to the, to the people? Absolutely. And, um, you know, you know, one of the things that we're constantly looking at is, is, um, how, how do we remove barriers, uh, for, for patients and families to access complaint processes? And, and, you know, I would put forward that, you know, our complaints processes, um, I mean, they're, they're fairly privileged. Um, and so, so it's really what, what can we do um, to, to make everything as accessible, as culturally safe, as respectful, um, welcoming as possible? Um, and that's what we're committed to do. That's awesome. I mean, it seems like, you know, the, the conversation has always been, let's, you know, increase access to care, but also let's maybe with that increase access to our, our licensing agencies as well. So, well, uh, I guess, let me ask you this and I'll, I'll, I'll again, start with Derek. I know Susan, you're going to be involved in this as well, but do you expect the practice standard that you're developing will be enough on its own to change racist behavior? I think that's a loaded question, but I'll ask it anyway. 
Well, you know, it's a question though that that we hear often, and um, and I think it is a question that's part of the dialogue in this work. I'm, I, I think the the superficial and very easy answer is no. Um, you know, a practice standard won't won't lead to that specific outcome. But I think the reality is that the practice standard is is part of a suite of of efforts and activities that we can contribute to. As you know, shoot, as we go along our individual journeys in in exploring our responsibility and our role um, in in this work, um, but also how we influence the profession, the system, um, the relationships that we we engender across communities in our province. Um, you know, so so where do where do we start? You know, I think we start by trying to make things um, as easy and welcoming as possible to our registrants. Um, you know, here here's a framework. This has been done in system and in relation with Indigenous uh, partners across British Columbia. And here are some basic principles um, to, 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 to meet, um, you know, looking at um, power imbalance, um, you know, being aware of how important culture is in, in the patient journey through the healthcare system, um, you know, having a sense um, of being committed to learning as much as possible about the cultural values and beliefs of, of others. Um, you know, being open um, to how we consciously and unconsciously um, influence, um, you know, behaviors in system and in relation with our patients. Um, so I, I think if anything, the, the standard is meant to be that, that, that expectation of first steps to help facilitate journeys as our registrants continue to provide really good care. And if I can just, just build on that in terms of what else we're doing and what we're planning to put in place once our board has approved the practice standard, which we anticipate in February of this year, um, which means the standard will be published, it will become operational, we'll communicate about it widely and registrants at that point will be expected to start complying with it. But we do know that the rollout is also going to require educational resources to ensure that our registrants are not only aware of the standard, but that they feel really supported as they learn about it and start to operationalize it in their daily practice. So we're currently working with a video production company and we're looking to develop a series of video vignettes, which will really serve as a key or a foundational resource to introduce and expand on the principles contained in the standard that Derek just spoke about. Uh, we're also looking at developing a detailed catalog of learning resources, including webinars, articles, books, movies, uh, e-learning modules, again, to support registrants. Um, we also anticipate that we'll be needing to regularly review the standard over time as we start to receive feedback from both our registrants and also maybe Indigenous members of the public. And we'll continue to engage to validate what we've learned. Uh, we're really committed to this process and we'll make amendments to the practice standard as necessary. That's great. Well, um, at the beginning of the conversation, um, you mentioned that part of this work includes the rebrand of your organization. Um, so why is this important uh, step in the process? And let's, let's hear from the CEO first, from Heidi, please. Yeah, thanks, Line. Uh, currently, we have a crest or a logo that was adopted by the Council of the Day back in 1886. And we have since learned that uh, many of the graphic elements on the college crest were taken from the royal arms of the UK. The symbols are very colonial. Specifically, it has a lion. The lion was used in many crests, including ours, which represents supreme power and authority of the monarchy. 
And the crown symbolizes the right of the monarchy to claim, or in this case, steal land. Back in the age of discovery, white Christian explorers were granted the right to claim land for their monarchs through doctrines of discovery, even though those lands were already inhabited by indigenous people. So we've come to realize that these symbols do not reflect our current day beliefs and values of inclusivity and accessibility to all people. And this is inconsistent with our efforts towards truth and reconciliation. So this is a very important strategic priority for this organization to come up with a new, a new way of identifying our organization. Susan? Yeah, thanks, Heidi. And of course, a corporate brand is not just a logo or a crest in our case, although of course, it's typically the most recognized and front facing aspect of a brand. A brand is reflected in everything we as staff and representatives of the college do in our behavior, our language, our symbols, our style, the perceptions we leave, um, our procedures and processes, like the complaints process. Um, a brand is how we show up what we say, how we say it, it's our personality and our character. And so all of us will have to embody and live it. So this is going to be a really significant uh, exercise for the college. We anticipate it will take approximately 18 months and it's going to involve four distinct phases with each one informing the next. So we're currently in the discovery phase, which is where we're collecting stakeholder feedback, understanding what people think of us today. We're doing current state analysis and environmental scanning. And the next phase is going to be defining the actual brand strategy, which will lead us into the design phase where we'll develop the visual identity and all the related assets. And then in 18 months, we anticipate deploying the brand, which means retiring the college crest formally and rolling out the new identity across all of our applications. So as Heidi mentioned, this is really an important initiative in terms of our strategic pillars in our strategic plan. And we'll demonstrate very publicly, we think, our genuine commitment to cultural safety and humility. Well, that, that certainly is fantastic uh, to, to do something like that, a rebranding of, of that nature. Um, and so it certainly sounds like you guys are taking the right approach on the, and being very careful and, and, and very thoughtful in your, your process. Well, I think this has been just an absolutely uh, great conversation. So I do want to thank uh, you, Heidi, Derek, and Susan for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. And it, uh, it, it really has been a pleasure. And I understand that we'll be following up with you uh, in the summer for a clear webinar on the changes uh, to your complaint process in response to your commitment to truth and reconciliation with British Columbia's indigenous peoples. So we'll look forward to hearing about more about that I also want to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode. You know, we invite you to continue this conversation through our clear discussion forum. The podcast episode will be posted in clear communities and members can reply to the post with your comments or reactions. Listeners can, uh, you know, post questions. Um, and, you know, if you're addressing equity, diversion, inclusion, and how you're doing that in your regulatory practices. Um, a couple of questions to kind of, uh, you know, get you thinking about it is, you know, what specifically are U.S. regulators doing towards truth and reconciliation with their Indigenous peoples? Um, how are you supporting the educational opportunities for staff and board council members' development um, in your organization? And, and how are you being, I guess, equity regulator? 
And finally, how are you engaging with the public that you serve on a proactive basis? We'd love to continue that discussion more in clear communities. And we'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. If you're new to this clear podcast, please subscribe to us. You can find us on Podbean or any of your favorite podcast services. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave a rating or comment in the app. Those reviews help us to improve our rankings and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free also to visit our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources, as well as a calendar of upcoming online programs and events. Finally, I'd like to thank our staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson. She is the content coordinator and editor for this program. And once again, I'm Lyon Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.